Welcome to another episode of The Award Goes To with Patrick and Lauren, where we celebrate the films that have won Best Picture throughout the years and discuss the history of filmmaking one Oscar winner at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick Pizzolarusso, and with me is... Lauren Olipra! Hooray! Hooray! I want the people at home to know that I script this out, and in the script, I even wrote your name. (laughs) Well, I guess that keeps me from improvising, so thanks for the restrictions, Patrick. Sure. Um, I mean, we want to keep this organic, but at the same time, I don't trust you. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) rightly so. Rightly so. I don't blame you, and I don't hold any ill will. (laughs) (laughs) On this episode, the award goes to It Happened One Night, which won Best Picture in the 1933-1934 award season. It also won Best Actor in a Leading Role, which was Clark Gable. It won Best Actress in a Leading Role, Claudette Colbert. Best Director, Frank Capra, and Best Writing slash Adaptation went to Robert Riskin, because this is based on a short story by Samuel Hopkins Adams. Nice, yeah. So it's uh, the first film of three to win in every major category. Like we said, this was starring Clark Gable and uh, Claudette Colbert, which I am not sure if she pronounced her name Colbert. (laughs) I know, I thought the same thing. I'm like, Steve Colbert. Let's go with it, because yeah. we call him Steve Colbert, or he calls himself Steve, Steve Colbert. Colbert. So this was one of Frank Capra's first films that he directed, and he went on to direct several Best Picture winners. I think his he's most famous for It's a Wonderful Life, which didn't win Best Picture. Oh. And I argue that it should it have. It should have, for sure. Okay, all right. It's got I his longevity. I mean, it's still, people still watch that today. That's, that's great. I'm watching it right Bedford now. Files. Right? Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I'm just joking. I'll watch Um, it this That makes more sense. Uh, It's a good nightcap. Uh, What this movie did do, though, is it it basically put Columbia on the map because Columbia was known for some small, like, low-budget movies. And then this came out, which was a huge, high-budget movie for the time, and it really put Columbia on the map as far as a film studio. I thought it was funny because Columbia Pictures, in the the time of 1920 to 1950, there was a slang term in Hollywood um, called Poverty Row Studios. Did you come across this? No, I did not. So Columbia at the time was considered a Poverty Row Studio because it would, uh, it was a lesser, uh, it was like more of a B-movie uh, studio and they uh, Warner Brothers and MGM would contract out their pain in the ass actors their contract actors to Columbia <laughs> Pictures as a way to humble them yes. as a way to humble them that's insane yeah so it was basically a punishment slum it in Columbia yeah but this particular movie actually elevated Columbia Pictures out of the Poverty Row studio status so I think that's just amazing like this, this actor's being too curmudgeon-y. Let's send him over to Columbia Pictures and have him do a picture. <laughs> Which is crazy because we now look at Columbia, and Columbia is has churned out some of the biggest blockbusters. That's kind of amazing, though. They're like, yeah, yeah, um, we're having some problems with uh, Lauren and Lipper over here. This, she send only her wants down green to Columbia. M&Ms. Send her to Columbia. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we'll give her green M&M's all right. Yeah, but it's so cool that we, we watched this movie and it was the one to elevate them out of that status. But I think also, and I don't know if you came across this, but there were so many big stars at the time that turned down this movie. There's like at least like six or seven uh, big actors that read the movie were like, yeah, I'll pass. And even the stars that did sign, like Clark Gable, his first day on set says, let's get this over with. 
Um, and the main female, Claudette, uh, only accepted the part because Capra offered her double salary and a guarantee that she would be in and out in four weeks of filming. That's so, amazing. Yeah, and there were so many stars that uh, that turned down the parts, um, including Loretta Young, uh, Margaret Sullivan, Miriam Hopkins, uh, Robert Montgomery, and uh, Myrna Loy. <laughs> Every single one of them were like, yeah, pass. And I wonder, they did say that the script originally was crap. And it's very different from what ended up on screen. But I also wonder, like, was it because of the reputation that Columbia had at the time? Who knows? Uh, see, that could be it. Yeah. So, they you were know, like, no, we just don't want to do it. That's a and life lesson. Just put your heart so into did, it. Did Gable and Colbert just want a paycheck? I, I imagine so. And when Colbert was done with filming, she she says to she said to her friends, "I've just fil- I just finished filming the worst picture I've ever made." <laughs> <laughs> she when when the Oscars were happening, she was up against Betty Davis and she's just like she just didn't even want to bother, didn't believe in the film and didn't even go to the Oscar ceremony that year when she was getting ready to get on the train to go on holiday after the film. They told her, hey, uh, you're going to win the Oscar. You might want to go to the ceremony. So she sped over to the ceremony to do her acceptance speech. <laughs> And she was still in her traveling clothes. I was going to say, please tell me that she was in like her oh, bathing yeah. suit and like no, a, her traveling an suit umbrella and, in her drink. Yeah. <laughs> but that's well, how little things. faith anybody had wow. in this movie. And then it ended up sweeping, which is just amazing. How cool is that? It's such a weird little movie, too. Yeah, it uh, really so was. A really quick synopsis. A renegade reporter and a crazy young heiress meet on a bus heading for New York and end up stuck with each other when the bus leaves them behind at one of the stops. It's That's really basic. There's some problems with that summary because Clark Gable's character doesn't just accidentally get left behind. He purposely stays behind right. on that one. But that's basically what it is. It's two people that don't want to be around each other are sort of forced to spend a lot of time with each other in a very small, confined space <laughs> and go from, I don't want to say hating each other, but from being... Um, Adversaries, kind Adversaries of. Adversaries to then developing a like and then a love. When I watched this, the thing that that immediately popped out of my head was, this is Spaceballs. Yeah. Because, I mean, Star Wars 2, too, a little bit because of the Han and Leia relationship, but more so Spaceballs because um, we'll, we'll talk about it at the end, but the character of Lone Star, Bill Pullman's character, does exactly what Clark Gable's character does. There's a reward for her, and he... He doesn't accept the reward. He just takes what he's he's owed as far as expenses, and that's it. Yeah. And the same thing happens. Yeah, Mel Brooks did that intentionally. He was parodying. Yeah, it's it. so good. Yeah, yeah. So a couple quick little things. I think before we dive in, one of the places this was filmed was the former Bush Gardens in Pasadena. I read which, that, but I was I didn't. I just assumed that it wasn't like what we know of Bush Gardens. Is it? No, it was like this huge sprawling botanical garden or gardens and the wedding scene was there and it was something that that is just lost to time it's now people live where the bush gardens were but it was uh, if you look online you can find old postcards from it and it really was this this giant botanical garden kind of like cypress gardens in florida that used to be there and people would just go and relax and look at the flowers and it's gone now but that's like a lost thing of la was 
was Bush Gardens, and uh, and it was filmed there. And I thought that was kind of cool. That's that cool. We we can see part of the Lost Bush Gardens of Los Angeles. I'm now going to call it the Lost Bush Gardens of Los Angeles for now. <laughs> I take it they That's don't have I... like the free beer that they do in in Tampa, and they don't have the the, the roller Montu. coaster rides. Montu. <laughs> no, that's the only roller coaster I could think of. That's right, Montu. That was a fun one. Right? I miss Bush you had to Gardens. go to the fest house. You got your free beer. Yeah. And if you went once, they would give you a year's pass to come back. Because yeah, the residents and Patrick and I went to college money. like down the block from Bush Gardens. Down the so it was great. Anytime we had off, we're like, ah, let's go to the amusement <laughs> yeah. park. It was fantastic. Let's go get some free beer. Yeah, exactly. And then you get your two <laughs> free beers, and then you'd wait for the shift to change for the new person giving out beers, and you get you two more free beers. And then you go on a roller coaster, and then you puke it all up. <laughs> oh, my God, this is amazing. <laughs> that was everyone's college experience, right? It wasn't yes. just us. <laughs> There's also another movie that this reminded me of. And did you ever see Forces of Nature <laughs> with I, Sandra Bullock? <laughs> I, think I, I, I think I may have, but I also think I might have blocked it out of my memory. As you should. Okay. You actually should I remember should there being a, a large wind in Sandra Bullock's hair. Probably. I don't remember all of it, but the gist of it is two people that are from opposite sides of the world, opposite classes, opposite everything, and they end up being perfect for each other. But she plays like the edgy sort of gothic rocker person, which I feel like is is against type for her. <laughs> that's so um, Sandra Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> that's her to a T. Uh, but this kind of reminded me of what I remember of that. I do like when this one starts. We have that old Columbia logo of the Columbia statue. And I when I first started watching it, I didn't realize that Columbia was not the best studio at the time. And I thought, that's a really good looking logo. So maybe they spent all their money on their logo. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, considering they had to do double pay for, for Claudette, it seems like they had some money to throw around, which is kind of strange for a B-level studio. They ended up, um, the budget was $325,000, which I think is really low, even for the time, because the previous movies that we've watched have been way higher than that. And this one was all over the place as far as locations. It was. You had you had some actual real life locations. You had some sets that were built. You had some, obviously, they, they went to Bush Gardens. They were out on sea, uh, out at sea at the beginning. So for them to be able to film in all these locations, but it still be, what'd you say it was? It was 300 something? It was uh, 325,000. Like that seems kind of crazy. It does, right? But, but then if you consider, right. I would imagine most of the bus stuff was on a, a studio lot. Oh, oh yes, yeah. it was. <laughs> and maybe the motel rooms were on a studio lot. So yeah, I could see them yeah. saving money. But then there's some that, uh, the outside of the, the auto camps that they stay in, those are clearly filmed outside at a real place. Yeah, Maybe they um, got a deal. Somebody maybe, knows somebody. Like, oh, oh, wait, wait, is this Columbia? Yeah, we better give them a deal. <laughs> give them the discount. You know what? They probably showed up and were like, uh, is this a student film? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Columbia College? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just let them through. Let them through. Clark who? All right. She, she's on a boat. There, it, the movie opens and they're on a boat and Ellie Andrews, Claudette's character, she's arguing with an older portly gentleman who I was like, is that her husband? Is that her dad? Yeah. The, the relationship was muddy because it was just a little too familiar in some ways yeah and it was very controlling very controlling and then they talk about her husband 
the king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. She's married to a king? Yeah. And that doesn't really get explained. To be honest, I don't think that ever gets explained, but you kind of understand or right, maybe that's his name. Yeah. But I mean, not until the end. Yeah, because I mean, they don't necessarily say the king, right? They just say, oh, you know, you married king, which does confuse. <laughs> his, his name is King Wesley. No so, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. kind of a kick-ass name, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Hey, my it is a really... I mean, if I ever have a you kid, need to talk to King about king. that. <laughs> like, oh, your majesty, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, so uh, her father, his name is Alexander Andrews, and he has swept his daughter away onto this uh, yacht, personal yacht, because they're well-to-do people, uh, in an effort to keep her from her newly uh, newly wed husband, King Wesley. And she's throwing a fit and having a hunger strike because she wants to be able to... She's in her 20s. She's, what, 22? Her character's 22? And her dad says, no, you can't do that. I I mean, basically is trying to control her life because she makes dumb decisions, which, okay, fair. Maybe she makes dumb decisions, but also she's 22, so she needs to learn those life lessons on her own, Dad, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah, but it's it's amazing because she just dives off the boat. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So the dad sends his minions on smaller boats to go get her, and somehow this person swimming in the open sea evaded <laughs> their little boats because they come back and they're like, oh, we, we, we lost her. We couldn't find her. I don't know how that happened. She hold, I don't she hold know how that happened. That's what it was. So so she escapes. And I've I've come to realize that they were off the shore of Miami. So she, that's where she catches oh. her first bus. She gets on the bus to head up to New York. And she's headed to go meet up with the king. <laughs> I love how you refer to him as the king. His name is just King. All right, fine. She's headed to King. She's going to go up to New York to meet him. and, and But she's trying to really uh, do this um, as, as undercover as she can because her father, who is extremely wealthy and apparently has spies and detectives all over the country, mm-hmm. um, are looking for her. So she's trying to fly under the radar as much as possible. And he's he's bought full aid, full front page ads in every news every major newspaper at that point and puts up photos of like like glamour shot photos of his daughter they're really nice yeah. photos yeah so it's really hard for her to stay on low, low profile because she is so recognizable when she's all over the front page of every major newspaper so she gets on this this first bus and when it and of course Clark Gable is also on this bus as well he's a reporter who has just quit his job or been fired. Depends on how you look yeah, at it. Yeah, <laughs> I love how they introduce him too, because there's a bunch of men. They're like rabble, 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 and they're all exactly they're all they're very clearly drunk, and they're all so interested in this phone booth. And you learn the reason why is because Clark Gable is in there and he's having a, an argument with his boss at the newspaper, and Clark is giving a, a a performance like he's telling off his boss, but his boss ends up firing him, and he hangs up and. Of course, he continues the charade to save face. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and another thing, I quit. And the guy, they come, he comes out of the the phone booth, and all the guys are like, "Yeah, oh, good job, you did it. You told him the, you know, the what for? Yeah, you gave him what for? Yeah." And this is where my confusion with King came in because they carry him off 
in celebration calling him the king. And like, he's the king. He's the king. So I was like, okay, is this the king they were referring to? That's what I thought too. But And I thought that was super con- like confusing for the film's sake. But it turns out the reason why they, they uh, do this little nod in the movie is because Clark Gable's real-life nickname was The King. Whoa. Yeah, which I didn't know. I had never heard that about Clark Gable. Me either. Yeah, but super confusing, guys. If you're going to name your character King Wesley, you don't have somebody else's nickname be The yeah. King in the movie. Save the inside joke for another movie. There you go. Do you think Clark Gable, was that a self-given nickname <laughs> guys I, that would be by really the way, conceited i go by king i'm not sure <laughs> no if he goes know. by the king <laughs> oh sorry the king <laughs> that's where the confusion's coming in <laughs> i did notice when the bus takes off it had a license plate for every state i noticed that too United States. is that because and they so, had to have a license plate for every state that they pass through that's my guess that back then if if you were operating in multiple states, you had to have a license plate for all of the states you were operating in, not just driving through. So maybe buses had to had to basically be registered in every state that their line was going through. <laughs> the whole it, front of the I, bus is just all different license plates, and they're tacked on all willy nilly. <laughs> they're not on like okay, well here's a here's a grid of license plates. One's on its side, another one is hanging off. Some of them are overlapping. Well, maybe they like, had to add one in every now and then if they were going to take a detour. <laughs> Oh, right. We're headed to Arkansas. We have no more room. (laughs) (laughs) Ellie and Peter meet for the first time on this bus. I do like the introduction of, uh, you know, beyond the very first time that we see um, Peter Warren. We see him on the bus and we we get to know his personality right away because he gets on the bus. He's upset that there's uh, the back seat where he wants to sit is filled with newspapers. And that reminds him of the job that he just got fired from. And so he asked the, the bus driver to move the newspapers. The bus driver doesn't want to. And so he's just like, all right, I'll just throw these out the window. <laughs> His interaction with the bus driver is so great because he's just, you get to know him. He's He doesn't really care about social standards. He's a wisecracker. He's got the jokes and kind of set in his ways. The bus driver confronts him after he throws the newspapers out the window and the exchange between them is hysterical. I was like laughing out loud because I was impressed. Yeah, it was really good. It's he, tight comedy. Yeah, he said some. He would say something to the bus driver, and the bus driver's like, "Oh yeah." That was his response <laughs> like, to everything. Oh, that's a great comeback. I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, like he's got all these snarky little comebacks to what people say. Yeah, and it's, it was really smart writing. It is. Yeah, I guess this is considered the very first screwball comedy. It it absolutely is. This paved way for all of them because it's. I mean, when you watch it. The pace is so much faster than anything we've watched in the past so far, but it's it's paced so fast because that's how those comedies go. They become like a, a snowball going down the hill and go faster and faster. And so his speech pattern is fast. The action moves at a very, very quick clip. I would say it's probably the prototype screwball comedy for film. Yeah, and I wonder if that may be the reason why so many of the stars back then thought the script was bad and passed on it. They probably, oh. this was probably a new genre that was being born and they didn't understand it. I'm reading this really slow <laughs> and it's not making sense. <laughs> Maybe? Maybe, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. But if it is the first screwball comedy, that would make sense because that is a very specific style of film. And he's he's definitely the one driving it and leading it. Even though the story is about her and everyone's trying to find Ellie, he's the one pushing all of the 
action, pushing all of the dialogue forward. Mm-hmm. He's driving everything through it, and it's and he's doing it at such a fast pace because of that rhythm that he's got inside him for this type of comedy. Yeah, I he did it really he well. Did, he did it really well. I mean, he must have. He really did kind of set the standard. And I never really thought of Clark Gable as a comedian or a funny actor before. But I was just going to say that. So this is definitely laying the foundation for those movies that we'll see later on. Yeah, way to go, Clark Gable. Yeah. Didn't know you had it Who in you. Yeah. Didn't know you were the trailblazer. I will say, a technical thing, Hollywood, as far as based on the movies that we've seen so far, they're still not good at filming in low light or at nighttime. Daytime... Plenty of light, you're doing great. But at nighttime, there's so many shadows. And I don't know if it's the cameras that are just not able to pick up um, light as well, or they just weren't lighting things enough. I do remember reading that um, ISO, which allows you to film in darker conditions, um, was a progressive uh, technology. And I have to imagine that at this point, the cameras couldn't handle that kind of darkness but I'll have to say, this is the first of them all that we've watched so far that I didn't have to have subtitles on. There's sound. Oh. The sound. Did you agree? Oh, yes. The sound jumped yes. up, jumped ahead by like years. The audio was great. Yeah. It was, it was so really great. good. Yeah. I could understand and hear almost everything. So they get to Jacksonville, which is their first big stop uh, on their way to New York. And this is, I've mentioned this a couple times, so is Lauren. This is the part where they're like, you got 30 minutes for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Ellie, who comes from a world of insane privilege, tells the bus driver, well, wait for me because I'm going to be a little late. I got I to gotta do a thing. And he's like, nah, that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's pretty like, clear and she's just so oblivious. Yeah. yeah, and she's like, no, you'll wait. And then she walks away. And of course, she comes back to the bus and they're like, oh, no, it, it left a half an hour ago. Yeah, now she's, she's a half hour late. late. 30 minutes. You're going to make that whole bus full of people uh, wait for you for 30 minutes? Get out of here. When they said 30 minutes, I was like, are you kidding me? Oh, she's terrible. And plus, she's already late to what she said. She said, wait for me for 20 minutes. She's already late to her late. Uh, <laughs> so she's stranded. and But can I also, like, she wants to go to it. And I can't remember the name of the place, but it was some fan. I think it was a fancy hotel. The reason yes. why she was uh, going to be late. I thought she had an agenda. Like there was something that she was supposed to do at this place that was making her late, but they never really addressed what it was. I think she went there to have breakfast there because she didn't want to slum with everybody else in oh, the bus station. That's I my didn't only pick up guess. On that, but that would make sense. They don't say why. Yeah. Because she's she's not going to wire for money from her dad. She's not contacting anybody. But she also doesn't have money, though. Uh, uh, she, she gets did. her. Well, she yeah, she gets her. When does she get her bag stolen? She gets her bag stolen. And uh, Peter, oh, her, her Peter badge tries to go, on, I think, en route to Jacksonville. Okay. Because when they get on the bus in Jacksonville, <laughs> he basically takes over her life. Yeah. Well, because she doesn't it's, know how to how do to anything? how to do anything in the real world. She she her bag is stolen and she still has her ticket and she has four she has like four dollars four dollars four dollars and then she yeah. goes off to have you know she wants to buy this and buy that and he's like uh uh-uh. no you yeah. have four dollars <laughs> he basically takes care uh control of her and it's not it's not a a mean thing or, or anything he just realizes she has no concept of anything and it, he needs to look out for her yeah and for whatever reason he's decided okay she's she, she uh, my needs charity help. case almost yeah um, she's helpless. 
Yeah, uh, when the bus first takes off from Jacksonville, she's sitting next to one of the most obnoxious human beings that has ever been put on screen. Oh, he's his name is I love Shapely. Shapely, Oscar oh, Shapely, an amazing character. Yeah, who doesn't stop talking. For I'm gonna assume that he's been talking for several hours when they cut back to her, because <laughs> she comments on how how much he's been talking, and he's hitting on her hard. He's hitting on her so hard, and he has a family. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He doesn't care. He's a traveling businessman. You know this is how it is. Yeah. Um, and eventually, Peter Clark Gable's character comes in and uh, basically was like, uh, "I'd like to sit next to my wife. So you have to move." And of course, there's I'm so embarrassed because I was hitting on your wife, and I'm so sorry. So they take care of the shapely, the shapely problem, this the shapely, the shapely situation. Problem. So yeah, uh, I don't know if you came across this as you were researching, but this little golden nugget that I thought was just amazing. So do you know who Fritz Freeling is? He was uh, he developed and introduced uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, the characters that we all know and love: Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, oh. Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, and Speedy Gonzales. Oh yeah, I might you have, might heard, of have heard of them. So this. Film was Fritz Freeling's favorite, or amongst his favorites. This film contains three things that uh, led to Bugs Bunny. The first thing is um, Shapely, who we were just talking about, his personality, the talk, the fast talking. Okay, I can yeah, see so that. his personality. There is a scene later in the film um, when they're hitchhiking. Uh, Peter and Ellie are hitchhiking. Clark Gable um, is eating carrots and talking fast. And he actually has the iconic Bugs Bunny, you know, carrot with the the long stem at the bottom. And he's taking bites and, and talking fast. And then because Shapely finds out who uh, Ellie is and wants, wants in on the, um, the cash prize for turning her in. So Peter threatens Shapely saying that he's a part of a gang and basically is trying to intimidate yes. Shapely into not uh, blackmailing Ellie and himself. And he co- he comes up with an imaginary character called Bugs Dooley, who is a super... I never thought of yeah, this. Yeah, who is a super um, big gangster or has something to do with, like, threatening his life. Um, sure, and sure. so, yeah, Bugs Bunny was born from this movie. And also, Ellie's dad was uh, inspiration for Yosemite Sam. I could see that for sure. And King Wesley was inspiration for Pepe Le Pew. And when I watched this movie the second time, I was looking out for those specific things because that's when I knew the facts behind it. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah. Like once you go and you watch it with those things in mind, you're like, that is 100% Bugs Bunny. It's great. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, This is the origin of the Looney Tunes, which are also all (gasps) screwball comedies. Hey. Thanks, Clark Gable. And Claudette and, Colbert. And also Roscoe, Roscoe Carnes, because he was shapely, and he he shaped Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I always wondered about the Bugs thing. I never I was like, Bugs, why would you name a, a rabbit Bugs, Bugs. Bunny? But, that but makes now it makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. See? Yeah. So their first stop, I don't know where they are in their journey on the East Coast, but they stop at what is called an auto camp. They do something that I have only ever associated with sitcoms from the 1980s. Um, specifically, I remember an episode of Who's the Boss where they do this, but it's two people who are not in a romantic relationship together but have to share the same room, <laughs> so they make a wall out of a blanket, and this movie is the start of that. Oh, yeah. You, have to and do, you do have to consider it. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, here's another cliche, but this was what set the cliche. <laughs> yeah, and so he's on one side, she's on the other, and they split the room in half with a rope 
that they tie across the room, which the rope is already there. Yeah. So it's kind of like, does this happen often? <laughs> um, and then a blanket that he throws over there, over the, the rope to make a makeshift wall to separate them. But she, he introduces this idea because she thinks that he's going to take advantage of her. And he's like, no, let me just throw this plank up. <laughs> I am not interested in you, lady. Like, you know, I know you think you want that I want you. But he puts up the, the blanket and... He's like, go on the other side of the blanket. Like, this this is your space. This is, you know, over here is my space. You can get undressed over there. I'm trustworthy. And you could just tell she's really resistant to it. She doesn't trust him. He's going to take advantage. So she's just staying put. And he's like, okay, if you're not going to go on the other side of the blanket, like, this is my side. I'm going to just start undressing. <laughs> and, you know, does it and does a little monologue as he's getting undressed about the order in which he gets undressed. Just as a little comedy thing. And she's just kind of, you know, standing there and just watching it. So he continues to get undressed and takes off his shirt. And if you'll notice, Patrick, in the movie, he didn't have an undershirt on, right? I did notice that. Yeah. So they, he originally did when they were filming it, but he was having such a hard time as he was doing the monologue, taking the shirt off and having the undershirt work with him in this choreography of taking off his clothes. So they ended up nixing the undershirt, which was kind of, it was unheard at the time. So as you noticed in the movie, he didn't have an undershirt. He just took his shirt off, put it down. So that started a trend. Men saw that. They were like, well, if Clark Gable doesn't wear an undershirt, I'm not going to wear an undershirt. (laughs) And it became a thing. And sales dropped in underwear, in in men's undershirts uh, for quite some time after that. And it said, legend legend says, that there were several underwear companies that tried to sue Columbia Pictures because of the impact that Clark Gable had on the market. Look at Columbia. You know, but also, look how underdog. influenced people are by the movies. Like, That's true. Come on, guys. There's something that I noticed, and it happened a couple times in this movie, and I definitely have seen it in some past ones. I think we haven't gotten to a point yet where either there isn't a continuity person on set or the editor is not as good as they are now i know that sounds really controversial and mean but (laughs) there's an example in this where she after he finishes undressing she takes a step to finally go to her side of the blanket wall and then we see uh an angle shift they move to a different camera and she starts that whole motion over again so instead of cutting in the middle they're just like she starts to walk and then they cut to this other angle and she starts to walk again and it happens a couple times in this movie where where a movement starts, they switch angles, and then it starts again. And mm. is that is that because it was too hard to edit mid-movement? I mean, they did that... have to cut the actually cut film and adhere it back together back in those days. So maybe, maybe they made it? a mistake and they're like, eh, this is Columbia Pictures. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to watch this film. <laughs> I feel like we should chalk everything up to Columbia Pictures. Yeah. Uh, we we jump to a quick scene on a plane of Ellie's dad, and this is where she's bas- he's basically saying, I've, I put out an, an APB. Everybody knows. They're looking for her. We're trying to find her. And he yells at the, the pilot to step on it. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, sure. Oh, Yosemite Sam. But there's a great transition here because we hear the noise of the plane, and then they cut back to the hotel room the next morning. And we hear the plane going overhead. I didn't even know. Look and at you. Fades out. Way to I was pay like, attention. That is really smart. That's really smart. I was really impressed with that. Oh, That's I a will, super now I smart transition. Now I to watch it all over again just to see that. And it, well, it gives us two things. It's a really nice, easy transition from the plane into the back into the hotel and with the characters where that we're, we're worried about. But it also shows that 
they're really close to each other because he's literally flying on top of her, but they're still so far away. Yeah. Because he's in a plane and she's on the ground. So it was just a really cool transition. So well done, Columbia. Yeah. yeah. Well done. Well done. One, one hmm. little uh, mark in your corner, Columbia. Against really? the 15 that you already have against you. <laughs> <laughs> We're whittling it down, yeah. whittling it down. I guess we should mention, though, that uh, at, isn't it at this point that uh, Peter ret- knows who she is yes. and decides, okay, it's this is beyond a charity case. Now she's become my hot story that can get me hired back at the newspaper. And it's not that he keeps it a secret. He actually talks to her about it and says, well, I'll keep you incognito as long as I get the rights to your whole story because this is going to put me back in the good graces with the editor again. There, there is a moment where there's it, it's very contrived to he does find out who she is and she says, are you going to turn me in? And he goes, no, why would I do that? And she says, for the reward, because they are they're going to give money for me. And then she immediately goes, oh, I'll pay you to be quiet. With her four dollars. <laughs> but like that felt like clunky writing to me. Because she was like, by the way, there's a reward for me. Because you didn't know. Oh, now yeah. Now that you know, oh, I'll pay you not to tell anybody. Which, it could have been answered because there's a full page ad in every major newspaper. And he yeah. works for, or used to work for a newspaper. So I feel like that it would have been answered through that. It might also just be that, here's an example of, of that she's she's actually not that bright. Mm-hmm. She's not stupid. She's just not street smart. Right. Because she's, she's led sheltered. such a sheltered life. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, they're eating breakfast. Yeah, and I, he shows her how to dunk a donut. And I thought this was a really cute <laughs> moment. I, By your laugh, I can tell that you definitely clocked it as well on your end. It but is. But it's like, yeah, she's she takes her donut and she like just holds it in her coffee. Number one, I don't think, and I'm sure you have, Patrick, but I've never dunked a donut in coffee. I can't imagine that that would be good. Is it good? I have. I know you It have. depends on the donut. It coffee, totally depends on the coffee's donut. Coffee's your thing. You're Mr. Coffee. <laughs> I would drink coffee with anything. (laughs) (laughs) But she holds it in the cup and he's like, wow, you're doing it all wrong. Like, here's another example of how you've been too sheltered. You don't know how to dunk a donut. And uh, hey, was Dunkin' Donuts born from this? Maybe more investigation to be continued. (laughs) But it's true. She was holding the donut too long in the coffee. But, you know, also you can eat your you can eat your soggy donut however you want. But. It is cute, the banter back and forth between them, because she gets on the same page as him. Um, At that point, they're working together. She's agreed to do the story, and he's agreed to take care of her all the way to New York so she can get to her husband. But there was a lot of really cute moments. I really did enjoy this, um, the middle section of the movie. I enjoyed the movie overall. I'll have to say that. Uh, But the middle section was great because there was a lot of really cute banter um, when she finally lets her guard down and when he becomes, you know, less... uh, I don't know. Grumbly and grumbly. And he's just frustrated with her for such a long time. Yeah. But that you, you, I mean, of course they're going to fall in love. Mm-hmm. That's not a spoiler. Like we know that, but we're seeing that start to happen. And it's, it's really nice. I it's actually it's so really nice to watch. Because she'll do yeah. something that's really like not street smart. And you could see he, he starts to get frustrated, but then oftentimes he'll just smile and shake his head. Like this is endearing. Yeah. She's just this oh, little, little Ellie. lamb. Yeah. Next leg of the bus ride. First of all, there's a band on the bus. And I don't know if that was entertainment provided by the bus company <laughs> or, did or there was just, just like a band. I was like, just like, hey, I got a guitar. A Let's play a song. Just, yeah, people just jammed on ba- on buses. On but they long... jammed 
to the man on the flying trapeze. <laughs> and when they, I mean, when they get around to the chorus, the bus goes nuts. Everyone loves it. And I, I really think this was Clark Gable's jam because I've never seen so much joy in a person's eyes as when he started singing for the first time. It has the same, it, it, it is reminiscent of like pubs when everybody joins in and does like a beer song. You know, it has that sort of a vibe to it. It was a fun scene. Yeah. Uh, I felt like it was a little too long. Oh, like, yeah. Okay, we get it. You guys are having fun. You don't fun. have to do the whole song, guys. The bus is also rocking and rolling like crazy. So this is this would be an example of this bus was a set built for this. They're not really filming on a bus. And however they were making the bus rock and roll, I'm like, did they, did they not pave any roads in the 30s? <laughs> There's a lot of off-roading between Miami Ooh. and New York. It was rough, and uh, and what happens? The the bus driver is also so into the song <laughs> that he drives off the road, <laughs> drives into Don't mud. Don't sing and drive, guys. Don't sing it's and drive. D- it's a dangerous time. Don't yeah. sing and drive. Wow. Uh, so the bus gets stuck during this time. Shapely, we touched on this before. This is where Shapely learns her true identity and realizes there's a reward. And Clark Gable's character does a really good job of scaring and dispatching Shapely by threatening him with his life essentially and, and Bugs Dooley monsters and you gotta watch out for Bugs Dooley so it was a great little moment there but they now can't get back on the bus because according to to Peter if Shapely figured it out other people could so now they're on foot traveling through the wilds of eastern America yeah and <laughs> the reason why Shapely find found out is because her dad is doubling down on these newspapers he was doing the front page of all the major newspapers well now he has the idea of doing all the smaller newspapers yeah, as well all the columbia level newspapers yeah, the columbia level <laughs> newspapers good call thanks yeah thanks. so that's how shapely gets a hold of a newspaper and yeah. connects the two so they they then run from there and end up in uh, there's just a lot of hay <laughs> and i kind of want to remind everybody that there's also a lot of smoking in this movie and so immediately i was like should you be smoking by all of that Hey, <laughs> but they don't care. They Maybe just it was moist anyway. hay. It could have been moist hay, but I don't think so because they were making beds out of it to sleep in. Eh, you could still sleep in moist hay. It would be super I uncomfortable. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the next day, we have one of the most famous scenes in Hollywood history, um, and that is the hitchhiking scene that Lauren mentioned before, where he's eating the carrots, and this is a scene where. Where Peter goes through a whole laundry list of here's how you here's how you hitchhike. There's these different types of thumbs that you stick out, and nobody, of course, stops for him. And she's like, "Hey, you know what? I think I've learned something on this trip. Let me try it." And this is where she hikes up her skirt, shows some leg, and of course, <laughs> this car. The guy had like five brakes because they cut to all these different ways that he's stopping the car. Yeah. And the car stops, and of course they're able to get on it. But this this scene has been replayed uh, and redone so many times. It was definitely done in Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. Claudette, she didn't want to do any undressing scenes. That's actually where the Wall of Jericho came from. Uh, Frank, Frank Capra came up with that idea because she was super resistant to undressing on film. That also translated to this scene. She didn't want to do the leg, you know, exposing of the leg for hitchhiking. So they got a leg double. Well, it turns out when she saw the rushes, the dailies, uh, she didn't like it. <laughs> and he's like, well. <laughs> that leg's not good enough for me. Tough. <laughs> so, yeah, that leg, that iconic leg is actually not even her leg. Oh, so they didn't reshoot it. 
No. She didn't like it, but they were like too bad? I think so. Well, Columbia only had enough money to do it once. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's why she got stuck in a Columbia film. She was just too stubborn. A fun little just Hollywood history thing about the driver who picks them up. The actor's name is Alan Hale. More of us know his son, Alan Hale Jr., who was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Fun fact. (laughs) Although the, the character that Alan Hale plays turns out to be a jerk and is picking up hitchhikers. And then when they stop somewhere to stretch their legs or get something to eat, he drives off with their things. Clark Gable then chases down the car. (laughs) (laughs) What else are you going to do? Overcomes the car somehow, beats the guy up, ties him to a tree, steals the car, and then drives back. And now they are in a car. That's that's justice. I don't see anything wrong with that. And at this point, it's now been about an hour and ten minutes of the movie. And we finally, for the first time, see King Wesley. We've heard about him, but this is the first time that we actually see him. Yeah, and if by this time you have wondered why is King not looking for his newlywed wife when everybody is on the run trying to find this woman, uh, it's also because her dad has put restrictions on King. He has spies. He gets reports. He's just in control of everything. So even if King wanted to go out and try to find his beloved, he could not. So we go back to the the lovebirds on the run, and they spend the night at another auto camp, which is a cool name. I kind of like that. <laughs> I guess eventually that was probably like a motel, but but before then it was an auto camp. Just picture camp. those cones from um, Cars, the Pixar Cars movie. <laughs> or like the teepee hotels. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the TP hotels yeah. that look like cones, the cone yeah. inn or whatever. Yeah, that's what I picture yeah. when you say auto park. That's, I mean, they kind of are. <laughs> we have another night where they split the room in half. And here's another great technical thing that they did. We are, they're on either side. She's lit great from where she is, but he's facing the blanket or the towel or whatever. And there's clearly a light on the floor shining up at him. And I was just like, that's just a smart place to put a light to light him because where else are you going to put it? There's a just a, there's a freaking blanket right in his face. There's no other place on the set to light him from the front unless you put it on the ground pointing up at him. And I thought, this is great. Well done. Yeah. Whoever's doing lighting, you get a thumbs up for me. <laughs> just not at night. Cheers to the gaffer. Right. Yeah. Good job. Good job. This is the scene where they realize th- they're falling for each other. They they actually love each other. Mm-hmm. And well, there there is a, a a moment in the the hay scene where he kind of disappears for a second to go get her some food, and she freaks out. She absolutely <laughs> freaks out right after telling him, "You can go." Yeah, I can get <laughs> along by myself. Yeah, she turns cricket, around, cricket. And he's gone. <gasps> yeah, and he was gone looking for food for her because she's starving. So we're starting to see that love grow, and and then in this scene at night. She actually goes to him on his side and she doesn't throw herself at him, but she definitely makes her interest known. And he kind of rebukes her, doesn't he? Yeah. Kind of pushes her off, but he realizes, oh, no, I'd love her, too. So he runs off to New York. Yeah, he tries to get a pay advance um, because he goes to his old boss, says, hey, I have the scoop of the century. Uh, I just need an advance. Um, And his... His editor, who could be boss, uh, is well. What do you need this money for? He's like, well, I need money to get married. So, with the promise of bringing him the scoop of the century, he does give him the. It was like a thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, 
She wakes up. Freaks out because he's not there. So the owners of the auto camp think that these this young couple were not actually going to stay the whole night and not going to pay. So they go into their their room to see if they're still there. And they insinuate that Ellie is a prostitute. Yes. Because they were like, this is not that kind of Where's your husband? Oh, okay. Number one, knock because this is a room you've let to me. Uh, Number two, none of your business. And also, like, he can leave for a little bit and come back. Like, what is in this the middle of the night. assault in the middle of the night, this inquisition in the middle of the night? So they kick her out. So she runs to, I think, the, the local police station and basically says, calls her dad. He's like, this is where I am. Come get me. Yeah, because, because she, she thinks, thinks he's that he abandoned her. her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's there's a whole little bit of silliness where he's super happy and he's on his way back from New York and Wesley and her father are in much faster cars and go past him and he's still really happy and he doesn't care what's going on. And then he realizes what's going on. He tries to get back as soon as he can. Yeah, he does see her in the car. Eventually. Yeah. And he's like, oh, why have I been so, oh my God, I got to step on also, it. And he's like, in a car that's dying. Like, I feel like in movies, if people would just communicate. That's it. All you got to do is just, would, I'll be right back. I guess back. you wouldn't have a movie then. But if you had just woken her up, said, hey. I'll be back. You don't even have to explain where you're going. Hey, I'll be back. I know you're super codependent. You freak out when I leave. So (laughs) (laughs) then all of this crazy comedy of error stuff would not have happened, dummies. We would not have screwball comedies. Oh, there you go. So everybody's back in New York. This is like one of the first montages that I'm like, yeah, you did it really well. It was (laughs) well-paced. We understood that time had passed. King Wesley, which that's when I went. Wait, his first name is King? This is so, the moment where you realize that. Finally! I was like, his first name is King? What right. kind of name is that? Well, no wonder you were so confused for the majority of it. Well, he's also a famous aviator. And so I thought, well, maybe that's like his moniker, King Wesley, as in the King of the Flying Aces or something stupid like that. I don't know. We also know, we know he's an aviator because he's going to land at the wedding. In an auto gyro. Is you that, heard it here, folks. Is that what it is? An auto gyro? Yeah, it's it's it, half helicopter, it. half plane. Yeah, I didn't know. So I have never seen that. It's so you can you can ba- you can take off vertically, and then you can just fly it like a plane. So it maneuvers you, like a plane. Picture a plane with a helicopter propeller on top. But yeah. I've never seen one of those. Do they, I mean, they must still exist. It seems they pretty... still exist. They're around and they still work. But he decides to land. In his good old-fashioned auto gyro, <laughs> which I thought, this is this is your wedding, and, and you're using it as, like, I don't know, well, publicity? They're but trying to show the type of guy this guy is. I guess. Or Columbia was like, we don't have much, but we actually have an auto gyro. <laughs> Let's put it in every movie we've got. Frank Capra's cousin, second removed, has <laughs> one. I got one in hey, the back. can we use that in our movie? <laughs> What, the old auto gyro? Sure thing. <laughs> I mean, hasn't worked in years, but sure, go ahead. But in the meantime, Ellie is now in this beautiful dress that her father has gifted her. He's he's basically saying that all that really matters is that you're you're safe, you're home. If you want to marry this guy, fine. I don't really approve, and you know that, but I want you to be happy. I also hope you're happy in this beautiful wedding dress that I gave to you. And she admits that she's in love with somebody. She fell in love with somebody else. I think it's amazing because he's like, okay, well, like, what's this guy like? 
she he, says, right away he's like oh so tell me about this other guy yeah which is he you better know, he really doesn't like king so Does he's looking like for king. any alternative it doesn't matter that he's unemployed doesn't matter about any of these things even so much as well he she says he despises me he can't stand me he calls me a brat he says that you know, I'm this terrible person. He thinks you're a terrible person, too, for bringing me up the way you did. And he's still like, tell me more. I'm really interested yeah. in this man as my uh, huh. my son-in-law. I kind of want to talk to this guy. <laughs> huh. Like he's not upset at all. Yeah. It was just so funny. So, of course, the day of the wedding, her dad calls up Peter and says, come on over. Uh, I'll give you the money now. And so Peter races over there and he <laughs> he gives him like an itemized list of like, like $38. Yeah. And the, socks. The father's, about yeah, socks and this and that. A shirt, a pair of pajamas that he lent her, um, a suit, no, a hat because he gave the hat Oh, that's to right. You did give his hat away. And the, and the father's like, you don't want the, the $10,000? He goes, no, I just want what I'm owed, my expenses for taking care of your daughter because she's a brat. <laughs> and so he makes a checkout for $38 and that's it. And... When he leaves, of course, they make eye contact. And of course, because they're not communicating, she assumes that he took the money. He walks off in a in a huff. Her dad comes out. Like we said before, she's like, oh, he took all the, he just wanted the money. And he's like, no, he, he just took the $38 for his expenses. He didn't want the money at all. He tells her that as they're walking down the I, aisle. I just love this. Like, you spend the majority, like, her dad, even though he is controlling and he's, like, too much, Walter Connolly, who played the dad, was very likable. And more so in this last scene, because I think he strategically wanted to give Peter the reward money on the wedding day as, oh, I'm going to have him strategically here to try to like sway his daughter from marrying King or remarrying King. Even so much as as he's walking his daughter down the aisle to meet King at the at the altar He's still throwing out like, hey, so there's a car waiting for you. It's filled up with gas. It's around back. Just saying. It's around back. You don't have to do this. You could just run off. Like he says this all the way down and it's fantastic. And so when they get to the vows, she, of course, says, no, I don't take this person <laughs> and just runs. Which is totally parodied in Spaceballs. She runs and jumps into the getaway car that her dad has strategically left in the right spot. <laughs> With the keys in it. Yeah. I love the idea of, for the 1930s, a woman chose happiness over any form of stability or like duty or whatever she had to do. She was like, no, I'm not going to have this wedding. I'm going to go with the person that I love. So I really like that. That was kind of cool. Oh, I loved it. And then, so of course, they get together. And one of the last shots of the movie is... The, the shot of the they're at a hotel and the blanket that they were using to separate themselves falls to the floor. And now we know like, oh, something's happening. And then the lights, you see, the, you see the motel from the outside and the lights turn off and you know somebody's right. getting busy. Right? The whole little building starts shaking. <laughs> uh, it happened one night. Which, boots, by the way, it did not knocked. happen. It did not oh, happen in one night. It didn't happen in one night. So misleading title. Yeah, but you're right. I didn't even think about that. It didn't happen one night. It happened didn't one happen bus one ride. Night. Hey, Lauren. Yeah. So while going through this, there was a lot of fast talking, especially on the part of Clark Gable. But did any lines jump out at you? The one that I uh, chose was said by Shapely, and it's right in alignment with the Bugs Bunny thing, because as he's apologizing to uh, Peter, um, when Peter says, hey, this is my wife. Stop, hit- stop hitting on her. He says, ah, no offense, Doc. And there you go. <laughs> 
That's where the doc came from. Oh, that's and so what's good. up, doc? So that's I had so to good. I had to say that. Yeah. So what's yours? What's your favorite line? So my favorite line came very close at the beginning where uh, Peter is on the phone yelling at his boss and everyone's around him and he calls him he says something and he goes you gas house palooka <laughs> that's <laughs> thought, good yeah what an amazing Ooh, insult that's like a, a cotton-headed ninny muggins that's exactly what it is like you gas house palooka why i gotta <laughs> that's great oh i loved it that's so, so good so patrick yeah well what, what kind of a cocktail would you drink as you're watching this uh this movie uh, so Clark Gable's number one drink was rye. So I have come up with my own little cocktail. Um, okay. And it's, I call it the Walls of Jericho. Oh, I like it. In the movie, that's the, the what he calls the blanket in between. And it's uh, it's rye and Cointreau and then some lemon juice. And it's uh, it's all right. <laughs> it's, oh, so you've tried it. <laughs> it's yeah. all right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's a rye base well, because Clark Gable. You haven't convinced me of anything here. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Cointreau like gives it like a nice uh, extra flavor and some lemon juice. But it's, uh, I mean, if you're like rye, it's it's good. If you're a bourbon whiskey rye drinker, it's a good drink. But if you're not, it's probably not your. Maybe cup if of you tea. add a little Campari to it. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Why? Hey, Lauren. Patrick, hates did Campari. you come up with a drink? I did. I did. Please tell me this Campari in it. No, there is not. <laughs> um, I also had a hard time thinking of a cocktail that would go with this. There really wasn't a lot out there that would relate to this. Then I was just thinking, like, the first thing that really popped into my mind was, like, traveling. And so I was thinking, bus. What's what's to do with a bus? And it's a good bus drink. The best thing. <laughs> but the only thing that really kind of popped into my head was the sidecar. Oh, um, no, that's I know it's not a bus, yeah. but it's still travel-themed. Yeah, and that's a. It's got uh, cognac and Cointreau, like yours. Um, lemon juice and sugar, and pretty simple. A nice, efficient cocktail that could get you, you know, a nice little buzz for your little trip on your on the bus. So, I like that. Yeah, a little sidecar. Ours, ours are actually pretty close, but the sidecar. That's actually a great. That's actually that's fantastic. The sidecar, so I, I think, would pair really well with this. You totally win. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Even though you had Absolutely. way more effort. <laughs> that's all right. It's really, it's okay. I just like yeah. playing with my drinks. <laughs> <laughs> mixology. You're like a mad mm. scientist of mixology. Uh, not, no, it's more of a mad mess. <laughs> Why is the countertop all sticky? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there could be so many explanations for that. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Remember to rate, subscribe, leave a review, follow us on Instagram at the Award Goes To Podcast, and on the next episode, we'll be talking about Mutiny on the Bounty. Yar, yarg. <laughs> Wait, was that a horse again? It was a little bit of a horse influence. It was a seahorse. Ba da ba ba da ba. Quack.